0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Uh, this one this week is going to be a little bit off the cuff because I haven't felt a whole bunch like prepping for a show this week. Um, because I had my uh, I had some surgery last a uh, couple weeks ago, and uh, the recovery process has been long and not super pleasant. Um, but the good news is I've been pretty immobile. For the last two weeks, and this has allowed me to get really deep into a book. And so for this month, we're going to turn this into kind of a book club episode. We're going to do the book that I've been reading for the past couple weeks. And the book is called Captured by Indians, 15 First Hand Accounts, 1750 to 1870. And it is a book edited by Frederick Drimmer. And Drimmer took a literal mountain of historic work and he condensed it down to this 400-page book. And I found this book at the Cherokee Trading Post on my way to the surgery, which is kind of hilarious because of the modern... View of Native Americans and, and how na- modern Native Americans view themselves. And this will make sense here in a second when I get into the book. So, this book is a window to an absolute horror show. It's really interesting, it's neat, it's full of adventure. But what strikes me the most is how absolutely brutal and insane primitive Indian cultures were. And I knew this going in. History is what I have been most interested in since high school. It's what I went to college for. It's one of the it's the subject that I care about the most. Um, it's a pet study of mine, especially when it comes to Indian history because that has been my greatest interest when it comes to American history. And I've read more about Indian history than probably any other subject. Uh, In fact, my next writing project I want to take on is is going to have something to do with Indian tribes in America. I'm not sure what it's going to be. I've got this cool idea of a, a fantasy novel where Indian tribes are a sort of elf race and early American explorers are coming into contact with them for the first time. I always wanted to write a fantasy genre thing, but I never really had the chance yet. But uh, anyway, back to actual real history. Um, I knew, I knew going into this book, I knew what every American really doesn't know. Almost every American. And that is the truth. And the truth is that people don't understand... The Reality of Indian Cultures in Early America. And this is the fault of Hollywood and the education system. Um, Most Americans view that history through the lens of Disney's Pocahontas, or Dances with Wolves with that dirty commie Kevin Costner. Uh, Of the two, by the way, Pocahontas is, is less of a laughable joke Um, and I already hear you out there. Sam Dances with Wolves is my favorite Western. Kevin Costner's great. How could you say this? Well, I say it because the movie, while it is a, you know, quote unquote, good as a movie, it's, it's terrible because it's a lie. Now, if you are one of those people who doesn't like what I'm saying already, I beg you to stick around. Listen to this through to the end, because there's a point that I'm I'm getting at here and you don't see it yet, but I promise you I'm gonna, I'm gonna get around to it. But it starts with how terrible dances with wolves is because it's just not honest about American Indian cultures. And uh, I got a real problem with that. Not gonna lie. And it's not just because Kevin Costner is a filthy little communist. But, uh, he is that too. So, anyways. There's a reason that early Americans called the Indians savages. And it's not because they were racist, though by definition they were. It's not because they were just mean. It was an honest and true observation of what they were met with when they landed on these shores. Do you guys know that where the Caribbean Sea gets its name. It's because when the Spanish first started arriving in the area, one of the first tribes they ran across were the Carib people. And the Carib people were demonic cannibals that raided their neighbors, killed and ate the men, and took the women as sex slaves. And there are even accounts that when the women they captured would give birth, they would feast on the newborn babies. Uh, and if you've read my, uh, my book series, this is kind of where I got the idea for, uh, for one of the native kind of primitive tribes in my book series. Uh, and that is not what you learn in school today. All you hear about in school today is how evil and bad Columbus was and how evil and terrible Cortez was. And what they don't tell you is that when Cortes landed his ships, he faced the Aztecs, uh, the most powerful Native American empire in the area. And the Aztecs were also a demonic civilization that sacrificed men, women, and children to the devil in the hundreds of thousands. And I say the devil and not the weird, long, hard-to-pronounce name of their Aztec god, because, I mean, look, gang, if you are sacrificing people, uh, you are sacrificing them to the devil. Whether it's Moloch, whether it's hutzil whatever, however you pronounce that— Whether it's yourself and you're doing it in the case of abortion to preserve your body independence and freedom or whatever you're doing it for, whatever name you want to give it, it's all sacrifices to the big red guy, um, the devil. And we modern Americans, we can't even fathom the horror of the historical realities of the past. We're too far removed from it. Uh, or we think we are. It's just, it's too abstract. It's in the dusty pages of history. It's not happening right in front of our faces. It's something we can't really visualize or, or understand. But what you need to do when you read history is you need to try to conceptualize the reality of what you are reading. It's not just pages in a book. It is reality. It is the past. These are things that actually truly happened. And if you view it that way, if you imagine yourself seeing it with your own eyes, that's when it will start to kind of hit home for you a little better. And so I I would say... Imagine that you're a, like, 17-year-old Spanish soldier. And behind you, Cortez is burning the ships. There's no going home. There's no turning back. That's not an option. In front of you is the most horrifying and hostile place probably on the face of the planet. The jungles are full of demonic cannibals dressed in loincloths their bodies are tattooed and pierced with animal bones they're wearing pelts of giant predatory cats that you've never seen before they carry clubs studded with obsidian and all they want in the world is to murder you or sacrifice you to the devil i mean really think about that conceptualize that as a as a sort of reality and try to imagine what it would have been like to be that person and to kind of understand that in in that same vein what I want to do for kind of the middle of this episode I want to read some excerpts from the book that I've been reading and like I said before These are all first-hand accounts, and they're written by people who were captives of Indian tribes. And a lot of these guys ended up being very sympathetic toward the Indians, and uh, many of them lived much of their lives with the Indians, and they came to love the Indians. And so these, these things that are written, most of them are not written from some place of hate or disdain for the Indians because most of the captives, a lot of the captives at least, uh, came to love the, the tribes that they were captured by and did not write about them with any sort of hatred. A lot of them are just kind of... Uh, reporting what they saw and sometimes it's even callous and kind of glosses over the reality of the horrors that they are witnessing and so I kind of want to go through them and read the excerpts and then and then I don't know pause and explain like what you are seeing what is happening in the actual story because like I said a lot of times they're they're just kind of glossing over it so Uh, Where we're going to start is um, the story of a guy named James Smith. And in 1755, he was a prisoner of the Cognawagas, an Indian tribe up on the kind of eastern New England area coastline. And I'm going to start uh, after he's been captured and he's living in the camp with the Indians and they bring in some more prisoners. That's the little piece I'm going to read right now. And he writes, About sundown, I beheld a small party coming in with about a dozen prisoners, stripped naked, with their hands tied behind their backs and their faces and part of their bodies blackened. These prisoners, they burned to death on the banks of the Allegheny River opposite the fort. I stood on the fort wall until I beheld them begin to burn one of the men. They had him tied to a stake and kept touching him with firebrands, red-hot irons. He screamed in the most pitiful manner, the Indians in the meantime yelling like devils. At this scene I was too shocked to behold. I returned to my lodgings. And then later, in the same chapter, this part really isn't kind of violent, but its I thought it was interesting. The Chippewa squaws are very bad women. They have a very ugly custom among them. When two or three of them catch a young lad that is betwixt a man and a boy out by himself, if they can overpower him, they will strip him to see whether he is coming on to be a man or not. That is what they intended when they crawled up and ran so violently at me. I'm very glad that I escaped. I agreed with him, and I condemned this as a bad custom and exceedingly immodest action for young women to be guilty of. So, both of those excerpts are from the same uh, story and from a New England tribe, and these are very... I don't know, I start with these because they're very tame, this idea of, And I say, they burned a dozen men to death and, and, uh, he, he started to watch the first one and then he couldn't really take it anymore. Um, the second little excerpt I read is just, I think, interesting because every time you see a movie or, or something done about Native Americans, it weirdly always tries to put some kind of virtuous kind of modest Christian ideal onto Indian women, and that is just historically not the case at all. Um, Indian women were very less so restricted by kind of Puritan Christian ideas, and were much more uh, likely to engage in Kind of what a lot of Christian settlers would would consider immodest, immoral, or shall we say like slutty behavior. Um, and I always found that kind of, I don't know, comedic because you always see when they when they dramatize it, their the Native American women are never portrayed that way, of course. Even though that's more the historical reality than than what they're portrayed, they're always portrayed as these kind of almost Victorian proper uh, women who who would never do anything like immodest or sexual, which is I don't know, funny, hilarious to me. All right, the next excerpt is from um, 1759. And this guy's name was Thomas Brown. And Thomas Brown was a, a member of the, the King's Rangers back uh, before the Revolutionary War. And he was deployed with the famous uh, Rogers Rangers. And this story is his story of when they are captured by the Indians, and he writes, and this is after they have been through a battle, and the Indians kind of come upon them and start to kill them. He writes, the Indian came to Captain Spikeman, who was not able to resist, and stripped him and scalped him alive. Baker, who was lying by the captain, pulled out his knife to stab himself, but the Indian prevented this and carried him away. Seeing this frightful tragedy, I made up my mind to crawl into the woods if possible and die there of my wounds. But I was not far from Captain Spikeman, and he saw me. For God's sake, he begged me, give me a tomahawk so I can put an end to my life. I refused him and extorted him as well as I could to pray, as he could not live many minutes in that deplorable condition on the frozen ground covered with snow." He asked me to let his wife know if I lived to get home. The dreadful death that he died. The next one is Alexander Henry. Alexander Henry writes from 1760. um, And the story is called The Massacre at the Michalamiak. Michalamiak. I'm not very good at these long northeastern names. I'm much better at uh, Apaches and Comanches and Sioux. When we get up into the northeast where everybody has such long names, it, it's uh, it's a little more difficult for me. But anyways, um, let's see what Alexander has to say. So Alexander is an Englishman who is living at a fort out on the frontier And in the fort are both Englishmen and a few Frenchmen, as well as uh, several Native Americans. And what happens is the tribes decide to attack and kill all the English and kind of leave the French alone. But their plan is to kill all the Englishmen. And Alexander is caught up in all of this. And he sees all of it happening, and he runs to his neighbor's house, who is a Frenchman, and the Frenchman tells him there's nothing he can really do for him. And uh, instead of just turning him completely out, the servant of the Frenchman, which is a Native American girl from a different tribe, she hides the Englishman up in the attic of the house. And as he's up in the attic, he's able to see through a kind of a knothole in the wood, and this is what he sees. Through an opening, which afforded a view of the area of the fort, I beheld the ferocious triumphs of the barbarian conquerors. The dead were scalped and mangled. The dying were writhing and shrieking under the knife and the tomahawk. From the bodies of some ripped open, Their hands, they dipped and quaffed, drinking the blood scooped in the hollow of their jointed hands. I was shaken, not only with horror, but with fear. The sufferings which I witnessed, I seemed on the point of experiencing myself. Next, we have a guy named John Slover. And John Slover's story takes place in the 1780s, and he's captured by Shawnee Indians. And here is how that little story goes. The inhabitants came out with clubs and tomahawks and struck and beat and abused us greatly. They seized one of my two companions and, having stripped him naked, blackened him with coal and water. This was a sign that he was to be burnt. The man seemed to surmise it, and he shed tears. He asked me the meaning of being blackened, but I was forbidden by the enemy, in their own language, to tell him what I was intended. In the English they spoke easily, having often been at Fort Pitt. They assured him that he would not be hurt. I know of no reason for making him the first object of their cruelty unless it was that he was the oldest. A warrior had been sent to the greater town to acquaint them with our coming and prepare them for the frolic. On our coming too, the inhabitants came out with guns, clubs, and tomahawks. We were told that we would have to run to the council house about 300 yards away. The man that was blackened was about 20 yards before us in the running the gauntlet. They made him their principal object. Men, women, children beat him. Those who had guns fired loads of powder onto him, putting the muzzles of the guns to his body as he ran naked. They shouted, hallooed, and beat their drums in the meantime. The unhappy man reached the door of the council house, beaten and wounded in a manner shocking to sight. Having arrived before him, we had in our power to view the spectacle. It was indeed the most horrid that can be conceived. They had cut him with their tomahawks, shot his body black, burnt it into holes with loads of powder blown into him. A large wadding had made a wound in his shoulder from which blood gushed. In keeping with the Indian's declaration when he'd first set out, he had reason to think himself safe when he reached the door of the council house. This seemed to be his hope. For coming up with the great struggling and endeavor, he laid hold of the door. He was pulled back and drawn away by them. Finding they intended no mercy, he attempted to snatch or lay hold of some of their tomahawks, but he was too weak to succeed. We saw him borne off, and they were a long time beating, wounding, pursuing, and killing him. That evening I saw the dead body of this man close by the council house. It was mangled cruelly, and the blood mingled with the powder was reddened and black. The same evening I saw him, after he had been cut to pieces, and his limbs and his head put on poles about two hundred yards outside of town. That evening I also saw the bodies of three others in the same black and mangled condition, These, I was told, had been put there, into death, the same way, just before we had reached the town. Their bodies were bloody and burnt with powder. Two of these were Harrison and Young Crawford. I knew Colonel Harrison's face and saw his clothing and that of Young Crawford of the town. The Indians brought horses to me and asked if I knew them. I said they were Harrison and Crawford's, and they said they were. I did not know the third of these men, but I believe he was Colonel McClellan, the third in command of the expedition. The next day, the bodies of these men were dragged outside the town, their carcasses given to the dogs, and their limbs and heads stuck on poles. And then, a little later in the narrative, the same man, he says, Every night I was invited to the war dances, which they usually continued until almost day. I could not accept their invitation as I believed these things to be the services of the devil. And over the next few pages, the same narrator, because he will not participate in the ceremonies or culture, he is planned to be burned. And this is what he writes about that. Death by burning now appeared to be my fate. I had resolved to bear it with patience. The divine grace of God had been... "'made less alarming to me. "'On my way this day I had been greatly disturbed "'about my approaching end. "'I knew I had been a regular member of the church "'and I had sought repentance for my sins, "'but though I had often heard of the assurances of faith, "'I had known nothing of it. "'However, early this day, instantaneously, "'by a chance of a sudden and perceivable lightning, "'an assurance of my peace, made with God, had sprung up into my mind. The following words were the subject of my meditation. In peace shalt thou see God. Fear not those who can kill the body. In peace shalt thou depart. I felt a deep peace of mind, and was fully assured of my salvation. This being the case, I was willing and satisfied and glad to die. I was tied to a post, as I have already said, and the flame was kindled. The day was clear, not a cloud to be seen. If there were clouds low on the horizon, the sides of the houses prevented me from seeing them, but I heard no thunder, nor I observed any sign of approaching rain. Just as the fire of one pile began to blaze, the wind rose. From the time they began to kindle the fire, and to tie me to the post, "'until the wind began to blow, was about fifteen minutes. "'The wind blew a hurricane, and rain followed in less than three minutes. "'The rain fell violently, and the fire, though it had begun to blaze considerably, "'was instantly extinguished. "'The rain lasted about a quarter of an hour. "'When it was over, the savages stood, amazed. "'They were silent a long time. "'And last, one said, "'We will let him alone till morning.' "'and take a whole day's frolic in burning him. "'The sun of this time was about three hours high. "'It was agreed upon, and the rope around my neck was untied. "'Making me sit down, they began to dance around me. "'They continued dancing in this matter until eleven o'clock at night, "'in the meantime beating and kicking and wounding me "'with their tomahawks and clubs. "'At last, one of the warriors, Half Moon, "'asked me if I was sleepy, and I answered, "'Yes.' The head warrior then chose three men to take care of me. I was taken to a blockhouse. My arms were tied until the cord was hid in the flesh. They were tied in two places, around the wrist and above the elbows. A rope was fastened about my neck and tied to a beam of the house, but permitting me to lie down on a board. The three warriors were constantly harassing and troubling me. How will you like to eat fire tomorrow? "'You will kill no more Indians now,' they said. "'I kept waiting for them to go to sleep. "'At length, about an hour before daybreak, two lay down. "'The third smoked a pipe and talked to me, "'asking the same painful questions. "'About half an hour later, he also lay down. "'I heard him begin to snore. "'I instantly went to work. "'My arms were perfectly dead with cord. "'I laid myself upon the right arm, which was behind my back.' keeping the cord fast with my fingers, which is still some life. I slipped it from my left arm over the elbow and my wrist. This guy goes on to escape. And I'm not going to read all that because it's too long and this is already starting to drag. All right, next story. I'm going to jump forward in time. We're going to go all the way to... Uh, the Comanche Indians, in the 1850s, the late 1850s. And this man and his compadres are captured by Comanches, and this is the story he writes. The head of the procession, as it circled the long way round, first approached Stuart and Martin. As it passed them, two of the youngest warriors broke from the line, seized them by the hair, and scalped them. Then they resumed their places and moved on. This operation consists of cutting off only a portion of the skin which covers the skull, of the dimensions of a silver dollar or more, and does not necessarily destroy life. How many times they circled round, halting to sound the war-whoop, and going through the same demonic exercise i cannot tell the unhappy men was hacked and covered with clotted blood in the progress of their torture they occurred an intermission of some quarter hour during this period some of them threw themselves on the ground lighted their pipes and others collected in little groups all however laughed and shouted pointing their fingers at the prisoners in derision as if taunting them as cowards The prisoners bore themselves differently. Stuart uttered not a word, but his sobs and groans were such as only the most most intense pain and agony can wring from a human heart. The pitiful cries and prayers of Martin were unceasing. Constantly he was exclaiming, "'O God, have mercy on me! O Father in heaven, pity me! O Lord Jesus, come and put me out of pain!' I hung my, eye, my head and closed my eyes to shut out the heart-sick scene before me, but this poor comfort was not vouchsafed me. They would grasp myself as well as Aikins by the hair, drawing our heads up violently and compelling us, however unwillingly, to stare directly at the agonized and rising, writhing sufferers. At the end of two hours, the warriors halted and formed a half-circle. Two of them moved out from the center, striking into the war dance, rising the war song, advancing, receding, now moving to the right, now the left, occupying ten minutes and proceeding as many paces. Finally, they reached the victims, danced before them for some time, then drew their hatchets and suddenly set the bright blades crashing through their skulls. The bodies were taken down and rudely thrown aside upon the ground. Akins and myself now anticipated we would be compelled to suffer the same fate. To our astonishment, however, we were unbound, taken by separate guards, dressed in our own hunting shirts and leggings, and started toward the camp. As we moved off, I turned my head to take the last lingering look at my dead companions. The Indian dogs had already gathered round the corpses And they were lapping the blood for the innumerable wounds. Yikes. Alright, next. Finally, and this is kind of... I think this will be the last one. This last one I took is the uh, story of a woman. Which, if you've noticed, every single story so far has been a man. And the last story being a woman is something... A little different, as you can imagine. Now, I have read other books about captives before, and a lot of the books I've read before have actually been accounts from women and children, and not uh, full-grown men. And this is why this book I thought was very interesting, um, as far as just it was a book very interesting. But almost all the stories were of young men. And there's plenty of terrible, evil, sadistic things you can do to a young man, to a grown man. But when it comes to children and women, of course, this is something we view as different. And I think you'll kind of see that in this story. Now, this story is a a whole bunch of families running from the Sioux Indians in the northern Great Plains during a sort of uh, uprising. And this one is rather long, and I'm trying to cut out just the best kind of like uh, the part that will serve our purposes the best. "'I got up and went to my husband. "'He lay on his left side, "'with his right hand in his face. "'I kissed him two or three times, "'and I felt his face and hands. "'They were cold. "'I could not shed a tear, "'although I knew it was the last time "'I should ever see him. "'I started for the Indians, "'but found I could only walk "'with great difficulty. "'My two oldest children came "'and helped me along. "'Mrs. Wright seeing what trouble I had to walk, came and helped me too. One by one, the women came from the swamp with their children. Most of us sat down. The Indians were standing around. Some were leaning on their guns. One or two had got to their horses. One Indian took a shawl and a bag from Rosa, Ireland. It began to rain. Now the Indians seemed to be in a great hurry. One Indian took Mrs. Coke. "'and started off. "'Some more of them took "'Mr. Ireland's two oldest girls. "'The largest, blackest Indian "'took Mrs. Dooley and myself by the hand "'and started off, "'neither of us making any resistance. "'I looked back to see if the children were coming. "'Freddy started, "'but an old squaw ran "'and struck him over the head with something. "'I did not know what "'and pounded him on the back.' Then she let him get up and come on after me. His face was all streaming with blood. Not satisfied with her fiendish cruelty, she ran after him and knocked him down again, pounded him some more, took him up on her hands, raised him as high as she could, and threw him on the ground. Pawn told me to go on. I went a few steps, looked back, and saw Frank on his knees, both hands raised. "'Mother! Mother!' he called." The blood was running out of his mouth in a stream. Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Ireland were both shot on the spot. Again, old Pawn told me to go on. The Indian that was leading me went on and left me. I started again and I asked Pawn if he was going to kill me. He said he was not. Miss Dudley and one child in her arms and one at her side, holding onto her dress... She was pleading for their lives. The Indians told her the same as the rest that they would not kill them. She had not the same she had not gone fifteen years when they shot her eldest son. I saw a Miss Everett running toward her husband, and an Indian just ready to take hold of her. Some Indian shot, and she fell. Pond stopped and loaded his gun. I trudged on thinking how brutally my children had been murdered. And I could not help them. As I was hurrying along to overtake Miss Wright, Pond shot me. The ball entered my back and came out my side, just above my hip, passing through my right arm. I had given Merton my baby, about fifteen months old, and told him to carry him as long as he could. He passed by where I fell, and supposed I was dead. When I fell, I took... I thought my back was broken. Now I began to think that there were some ponies behind and that they might step on me. I tried to move and found I could crawl. I had gone a few yards over the trail when a young Indian came along and pounded me over the head and the shoulders of the rifle. I expected every moment he would take my scalp, but he did not. He threw the rifle down by my side and went on. I remained perfectly still for two hours or more thinking there might be more Indians about, then I tried to move. To my astonishment, I found I could get up, but with very great difficulty. When I raised up, I found I had been bleeding very badly. It was now raining hard, but not hard enough to wash away the blood. I sat up until dark, and I heard William Dudley call, Mother, Mother, and then Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Smith, This frightened me very much, for I had supposed he was dead. I got up and started back to where the women and children had been killed. I passed by William Dudley, but did not speak to him, as I thought the boy would feel very bad if he knew I was there. He lay on his face as he had fallen. Next I found mrs Smith; I felt her face. She was quite dead. I thought I would take her apron off and put it around me, as still raining very hard, I was quite wet and cold. I hunted around for my children that had been murdered. I found Miss Ireland lying on her back, dead. I took two pins out of her waist. Her child, about two years old, was sleeping with its head upon her breast. It had been shot through the leg slightly. I found one of my children dead with his limbs straightened out and his arms lying by his side. It seemed he had died without a struggle. I felt him, all the rest of them. I found Freddy, the one the squaw had beaten. He was quite warm. He rattled very badly in his throat. I called him and rubbed his limbs, but he did not answer. I found Mr. Everett's children near. The eldest, a boy, was dead. The youngest boy and the oldest girl were living. Charlie was lying on his back, sobbing in his sleep, like a child that had worried itself out crying. Lily lay with her head and knees drawn up under her, as though she was cold. I spoke to her, and she raised her head. "'Mistista,' she said. I answered her. "'I wish you would take care of Charlie,' she begged. "'I said, I cannot, Lily, for I must go and find Johnny.' I knew that he and Merton were alive somewhere. She asked for a drink. I told her I could not give her any. She then asked if there was water in heaven. I said, yes, Lily. When you get to heaven, you will have all you want. I thought it would be a comfort to her to tell her so. I was very sorry to leave them, but I was obliged to, for I had hard work to get done myself. I could not find Frank around there. It was now quite light, and I went to the bunch of weeds and lay down, and I lay there until night. This was Thursday the twenty first of August. A little more than one day had passed since we were all in our homes, but seeming in an age had passed since that time. I could not find my children. I imagined that they had gone to sleep somewhere in the dead and wounded. About nine or ten o'clock, somewhere The Indians came back to where they had fought our folks. I heard them shooting. During the day, I heard children crying most of the time. Sometimes I heard them screaming and crying. I could not see them, for I had gone over the ridge. No one can imagine my feelings. I wished I could die. I thought then, and I think now, that they were torturing the children. It was a great punishment to me. To hear the children crying and moaning under the cruel tortures of the Indians. I thought they were my children that I heard. I wanted to die, and yet I feared to die by the hands of the Indians. Had I not feared this horrible mode of death, I should have run away out of the hearing of the innocent sufferers. About four o'clock in the afternoon, I heard three guns fired, and the children ceased their crying. Poor innocent ones. They were now at rest. I kept still until dark, then started for the timber. I could see a great way off. So, I'm going to stop with that one as the last uh, excerpt I'm going to read. And again, I-, I chose that one last because stories of women and children are always worse. And... um I'll be honest, it almost makes you sick to read about what was done to not just men, but the torture and murder and rape that was committed against women and children on the American frontier. And, um... These things, when you again, when you conceptualize them, when you actually imagine them as a reality, which they were, they become so abhorrent and horrifying that you can barely imagine them being true. And why is that? Why are these things so horrifying and abhorrent to us? Well, it's because Indian culture was different than our culture is today. They had different beliefs, different values, different morals. And all of us who are serious people who understand history would agree that that's the case. Um, Morally, the Indians were worse people than we are today. And that's just a historical fact. But why? Why were their beliefs, why were their values, why were their morals so much worse and different than ours are today? Well, that part we can answer. And this is where a lot of people are going to get even more pissed. Uh, But I want you, again, to stay with me here because I'm going to explain this. And we've talked about this idea before on an earlier podcast uh, when we talked about a couple of novels, when we talked about Tyrants and Savages. And what we talked about is this. And the idea is that Christian virtue and Christian religious ideas... These ideas, for a thousand years or more, were rooted in European cultures and all of the early American settlers that came from Europe, whether they were Protestants or Catholics or, you know, Spanish or Portuguese or English, they were, they were rooted in these ideas. And religion comes first, then comes culture, and that's how it works, and Christian religious ideas permeated our European cultures for a really long time. Now, before everyone gets bent out of shape, does does that mean that we always lived up to them? Well, of course not. Um, and that's the point of the Christian idea, is it not? The, the idea of Christianity, the teaching of Christ, is to be different than the world, to deny... At all possible points are weak and violent tendencies of human nature. The Ten Commandments, the Seven Deadly Sins. Christianity teaches you what you are and tells you to resist your sinful impulses. And this is what was so revolutionary about it in the first place. You see, the Indian tribes were different And they weren't different because they were different. They were different because they were normal. They were a vision of what mankind is in its most basic and primitive sense. They aren't the exception. They're the rule. We human beings, without any sort of uh, influence of Christ... We are violent, we are horrific, we are sinful bastards. If left apart from God and the influence of a just world, we wallow and we revel in sadistic and often satanic behavior. Do you think the ancient pagan Germanic tribes were any better than the Indians? Well, no, they were just as cruel and sociopathic as the American Indian tribes were. we're all just humans, after all. Some of us are better than others. Some will be more merciful, some more caring, some more gentle. But others will be more violent, more sadistic, more satanic. And the thing that keeps that in check is the authority the power in society of the the Christian ideal, the, the philosophy of religion. There were plenty of relatively peaceful, benign, gentle Indians, but were they in charge of their fellow man? Even within the same tribes? No, they weren't. So the most heinous of things were allowed to happen because the strong did what they wanted, even if what they wanted was hideous. And what you need to understand is that Christianity, as a religious and cultural idea in European cultures, did a lot to temper this urge of humanity towards absolute horror. Now, was that always perfect? Again, of course not. Of course that is the point of Christianity in the first place. This, what we've talked about in this podcast, what I've read to you, the horrors that, that I've recounted, this is your nature, your sinful, violent, greedy, lustful nature, full of pride. And Christianity tells you that you will never fully overcome your own human nature. And what it asks of you is that you make every effort to do so. And some do and some don't. But that's what's asked of you. But we see what happens when even a few do their best to adhere to this religious idea and these these cultural ideas. You can't just get away with smashing the heads of infants on stones in a Christian culture not for long anyway. You can't get away with cannibalism and human sacrifice forever in a society that believes in striving toward Christian virtue. The fact that these things go on anyways on occasion in human societies doesn't prove this to be wrong. It it just proves the opposite. And if you don't have that belief, that, that, that Christian idea, whether or not you believe in God, if you live as a part of Western culture, these these moral ideas you have, what is their basis? Well, their basis is... Judeo-Christian moral ideas, the Ten Commandments, the seven deadly sins. If you don't have that, what stops you from scalping your enemies? What stops you from raping their women and killing babies? What keeps you from pride and revenge and wrath and all of those sins? What I'm here to tell you is that nothing keeps you from that without those Christian ideas. The revolutionary idea of Christ was love your neighbor. And not only that, but love your enemy. Until Christ, people pretty much understood that you should treat people in your own family or your own tribe in a decent way. Hell, that was primitive, evolutionary almost, if you want to put it that way. It was required for survival to treat your tribe, your family, that way. The revolutionary nature of Christ and, and Christian ideal was that when he was asked, who is my neighbor? His answer was, everyone is your neighbor. He, his answer was, love your enemy. And this is something and was something that was absolutely foreign to all of humanity. You loved your children your tribe, your countrymen, but you hated your enemy. You couldn't rape and murder your countrymen or your tribe, but your enemies were fair game. The world over, everywhere, every culture. In fact, it wasn't just expected to hate and torture and kill your enemies. It was seen as good. It was seen as a moral right in all primitive cultures, Indian cultures included. And Christian thought supplanted this notion of moral goodness in revenge and torture and killing of your enemies. And it's the only thing in the history of mankind to do that, this idea of love your enemy. So whether or not they always lived up to it, And they didn't. Nobody ever does. Those European cultures that showed up on the shores of the New World and had this idea hardwired into the back of their brain that the right thing to do was this Christian moral idea, European Christian ideas on morality and chivalry were were branded into these people even if they didn't completely live up to them. And still today, it's probably branded in you, most of you. And this is why, if you, if you actually conceptualize these stories that I read, they're horrifying beyond all belief. Because you, you've grown up and you've existed in this world that was built on these Christian ideas and these Christian moralities. Whether you like that or not, whether you want to admit that or not, whether you want to live in that world, that's the world you live in. That's the truth. That's the historical truth. But the the question I have for you as we wrap up this podcast, the question that you need to think about is do we still believe in these ideas? And I would say the answer is no. These ideas, these Christian virtues, are wearing away. They're eroding faster than people can imagine. And I want you to ask yourself, what does that mean for you, for society? And you already know the answer to that. If you stop believing in the idea that you should love your enemy... Well, what are you willing to do to him? If you truly believe he is your enemy and he seeks your destruction and you do not, if you are not bound by loving your enemy, is there anything you are not justified in doing to your enemy that seeks your destruction? How far are we... From a culture where anything goes when it comes to your enemy. How far are we from this bloodthirsty violence of history without the regard for moral ideas? What does that world look like? Well, I refer you to the pages we read earlier. It's not a pretty vision. And if we decide to let go completely, of our Christian moral ideas, that's the world we're going to live in. There's no other world to live in except for savagery and, you know, blood feuds and primitivism. That is the that is the end point. If you are going to give up the idea of, of love, loving your enemy, loving your neighbor, if you're getting rid of that, There is only one other option. And even if you're one of those people who who likes to think that you're all about love and you're all about tolerance, except when it comes to the people you view as not on your political side, you view as fascist, or you view as evil, dirty Republicans, or whatever you think they are. If you're dehumanizing your political opposition your political opposition is also going to dehumanize you and what that turns into is not just warfare the way we understand warfare of the past 100 years it is a warfare of absolute destruction where there there are no rules there are no there is no Geneva convention there is no there is no line in the sand, we end up back in the world of savagery. And if you don't think we can get there, then you need to read more. Because that has been the rule of the world since the dawn of time. And what we are living in right now is the the exception to that rule. And we are currently headed back the other way. So, anyways... That is the book study for this week, Captured by Indians. I would suggest everybody, if you want to learn a little bit about history, pick up this book or pick up another book uh, that is first-hand accounts of Indian captives. It is some of the best history you can read when it comes to American history. So, that's where I'll leave you. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for your time. I'll catch you guys next time on the Capo Podcast.